Bibles now to Romans chapter 3, and we'll look, take a look at verses 25 and 26 tonight. Romans chapter 3. In their book, The Day America Told the Truth, James Patterson and Peter Kim asked the question, what are you willing to do for $10 million? Perhaps you've played this game yourself, but they ask it in a serious way. And the answers that were given of this cross-section of the population were fairly alarming. Two-thirds of Americans polled would agree to at least one and some to several of the following. What would you do for $10 million? 25% said they would abandon their entire family. 25% said they would abandon their church. 23% said they would become prostitutes for a week or more. 16% said they would give up their American citizenship. 16% said they would leave their spouses. 10% said they would withhold testimony and let a murderer go free. 7% said they would kill a stranger. And 3% said they would put their children up for adoption. Compare that to the account of Teddy Roosevelt from over 100 years ago, which read like this. During his time as a rancher, Theodore Roosevelt and one of his cowpunchers lassoed a maverick steer, lit a fire, and prepared the branding irons. The part of the range they were on was claimed by Gregor Lang, one of Roosevelt's neighbors. According to the cattleman's rule, the steer therefore belonged to Lang. As his cowboy applied the brand, Roosevelt said, Wait, it should be Lang's brand. That's all right, boss, said the cowboy. But you're putting on my brand, Roosevelt said. That's right, said the man. Drop that iron, Roosevelt demanded, and get back to the ranch and get out. I don't need you anymore, Roosevelt said. A man who will steal for me will also steal from me. When an individual acts inconsistently with what they know to be right, we say that person lacks integrity. In the portion of Scripture that we consider tonight, Paul highlights the integrity of God. God always acts consistently with what is right. He always acts consistently with who he is. God never compromises on even one aspect of his perfection. Allow me to explain, if I may. God loves us dearly, but we are sinful, and he is holy. So he cannot overlook our sin and have fellowship with us simply because he loves us, as that would violate his holiness. So what was he to do? He had to figure out a way to deal with the sin problem that we'd be consistent with his character. The result was the cross, where love and holiness intersected. Justice demanded that sin be punished. God resolved to absorb the punishment himself, specifically in the second person of the Trinity. When we really consider that, I mean really consider that, not just give it a passing thought, but when we really consider the problem that was faced, the dilemma, if you will, if I could use that terminology, the dilemma that God faced and how he chose to solve 
that dilemma. By sacrificing himself and taking the punishment upon himself, God the Father judging the Son, it really doesn't leave any room for pride, does it? I'm sure that's what Isaac Watts had in mind when he wrote one of my favorite hymns. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God, all the vain things that charm me most. I sacrifice them to his blood. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love in sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Isaac Watts was one of the most prolific hymn writers that the Christian church has ever known. Probably the second most prolific, or the first, depending upon how you count them up, was Wesley. And Wesley reportedly said that he would give up all his other hymns if he would have just written that one. <laughs> Interesting, isn't it? But I think that hymn says it all. Love, love and, and mercy, love and justice, rather, had to, to meet at the cross. Sorrow had to meet with love to pay the price, and it takes away all our pride when that happens, when we really, truly consider it. Now, with regard to our text tonight, many centuries had passed between the time of Adam's sin and the cross. So the question comes up, what happened to the people who died before Christ paid that penalty on the cross. Would they all go to hell because the penalty hadn't yet been paid? Could God save them strictly from his love because the cross had never occurred? Was God acting consistently with his character before the cross in his dealing with the Old Testament saints? Because quite frankly, we know that some Old Testament saints did not go to hell. I think of Elijah and Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration. They're talking with Jesus Christ, no indication that they were suffering eternal punishment. David, Abraham, Joshua, and the list goes on and on. Was God acting out of, in, out of character? Was he acting with a lack of integrity by not dealing with the sin issue from Adam to Christ? Well, tonight's conclusion of this great paragraph that Martin Luther called the chief point, the very central place of the epistle of the whole Bible, I believe answers these questions. Read along with me, and actually let's start in verse 21 so we can get the flavor of the entire paragraph. Paul says, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. While it would have been probably most effective to study Romans 3, 21 through 26 in one setting, time 
simply wouldn't permit it. So in, out of necessity, we've broken it down into four parts, and, and these have been four lessons. The first three we've already covered. The fourth we take a look at tonight. In the first, we looked at verse 21, and we saw Paul reiterates the revelation of God's righteousness, and then he related it back to the Old Testament. In our second lesson on this particular section of Scripture, we see that all human beings, equal in their sin, have equal access to God's righteousness through faith. That was verses 22 and 23. In verses 24 and the first part of verse 25, we studied this two weeks ago, the source of God's righteousness and the gracious provision of Christ as an atoning sacrifice was presented. Remember we used an acronym GRACE, G-R-A-C-E, and we said it stood for God's riches at Christ's expense. In order for us to be rightly related to God, someone else had to pay the price, and that person was Jesus Christ. And that's basically the subject of verses 24 and the first part of, part of 25. And now, in the last half of verse 25 and the first part of verse 26, we see the conclusion to this great portion of Scripture. The atonement not only provides for justification of sinners, but also demonstrates the justness or the integrity of God throughout the process. So in this final section, there is a strong emphasis on the integrity of God, which we will define as his always acting in complete accordance with his own character. Now again, in verse 25, the second part, Paul says this was to demonstrate his righteousness, meaning God, God publicly displaying Jesus Christ as a propitiation. This was to demonstrate his righteousness. So again, in the first part of verse 25, Paul asserts Jesus was publicly displayed as the propitiation or satisfying the proper demands of a righteous God for judgment on sin. That's what propitiation means. It's a $100 theological word, but if you could, uh, if you could remember the word satisfaction, you'll remember what propitiation means. But technically speaking, if we gave an extended definition, propitiation means satisfying the proper demands of a righteous God for judgment on sin. Now here's the hard part for you and for me, and here's the humbling part. God loves us. That's true. That's undeniable. But that love alone couldn't produce our salvation. In my view, that love motivated what produced our salvation. But the sin issue had to be dealt with, and love alone couldn't deal with it. Had love alone attempted to deal with it, God would not have been acting consistently with his entire character. Perhaps the love part, but he wouldn't be exercising his, his integrity. He wouldn't be exercising his justice or his righteousness. His holiness would have been offended. There would have been nothing that could have been done about that. So, so a very heavy price had to be paid. And that's, I don't know if you remember, but that's how we concluded the last lesson that we had on Romans, is that we ought to appreciate that very, very steep price that was paid for us and live our lives as though we really did appreciate it. 
And it wasn't just some sort of theoretical exercise, some sort of philosophical exercise that we're going through. I, I love discussing philosophy, although I'm a, a very amateur philosopher, but I love listening in on philosophical discussions that real serious philosophers have. But sometimes I've noticed that the, that the philosophical discussions take a real theoretical turn and have no practical significance. Not really. And they start arguing over minutiae that really don't have any bearing on where I live. And maybe it's the same way with you. I, I don't know. But this is not some sort of ethereal philosophical discussion we're going through tonight. This is material that is, is very soteriological, meaning it's related to the doctrine of salvation. And I know everybody here, I assume everybody here is already safe. So why would it matter to you that Jesus Christ was publicly displayed as the mercy seat and that God needs to remain consistent with his character? It matters because we need to understand the price that was paid. And I really truly believe if we reflected on the price that was paid for us, we would live differently. We really don't need somebody behind us with a cattle prod attempting to prod us into the Christian life. We need to look forward. And what I mean by forward is we need to keep our focus on Jesus Christ and what he did. And I won't need anybody prodding me in the rear end to do what Christ wants me to do if I'm totally focused on him. But, watch, if my mind is somewhere else, if my focus is on my job or or even legitimate things like my, my family or, or uh, caring for others, even my ministry. If my focus is on anything other than Jesus Christ, and there can be subtle distractions to that focus. Then, yeah, I need somebody constantly prodding me with a cattle prod to get me to do what I should do. So that's why it's so important to you and to me as, as people who have already trusted Jesus Christ for eternal life. Sometimes we have to wonder, why bother with soteriology as believers? It's so we can have a deeper appreciation for who Jesus Christ is and what Jesus Christ did. Because that's exactly what we do in the communion service. We appreciate who he was and what he did. And unfortunately, he had to command us to remember him. Knowing how human nature is, our tendency is to get our focus off of him. So at least periodically... We take time and set it aside as a local body to remember Jesus Christ, who he was and what he did. I think what Paul is really doing here is asking us to do that every day, to constantly keep before us the cross of Christ. One of the great preachers of a previous generation was a man named Spurgeon. Perhaps you've heard of him. Over in England, he was the prince of preachers, at least for that generation. And Spurgeon is said to have brought every sermon through the cross at one point or another. The the, every sermon had to intersect with the cross for Spurgeon, and I know why he did it. Because if we keep the person and the work of Jesus Christ ever before us, everything else will fall into place. Now, I'm not saying that's all we ever learn. I'm not saying that we forget the rest of the, the counsel of God, but we've got to keep that before us. Now, some of us don't like to do that because it's painful, particularly when we get off into sinful patterns that we're not too proud of. We don't want to consider the cross. Because when we truly consider it, we realize that that willful sin that we committed and continue to keep committing, Jesus Christ had to suffer for that on the cross. And it convicts us. And our conscience, the Holy Spirit working through the conscience, makes us feel bad. And you know why you feel bad? Because you're not acting, you and I both, are not acting consistently with what we know is right. After we become a believer in Jesus Christ, we receive a new nature. After we become a believer in Jesus Christ, it is no longer normal. Now watch, watch it closely. It's no longer normal 
for us to sin. It's very common. Okay. But it's not the norm anymore. You have a new nature. The norm would be to act consistently with that new nature. And when we don't, God the Holy Spirit acting through our consciousness, don't let us have any comfort in our life. And the same is true for an unbeliever to a much lesser degree. And I think it's because, in my view, it's because the unbeliever is created in the image of God and there's still some of that left. It's the image of God is severely damaged in the fall. I don't believe it was totally annihilated, but I believe it was damaged severely beyond repair without God's intervention. But even the unbeliever has some concept of right and wrong. And when they violate that concept of right, their integrity uh, is challenged, and they know they don't have it, and they're convicted. That's where this matters to me and to you on an everyday basis. So the first thing that Paul brings out, at least in this last portion, is Christ is publicly displayed, on display for everyone. His shame was in full view. And believe me, the, Christ was, the cross was a very shameful event. It was not pretty. It was not sterile. It was grotesque, and it was shameful, and it was in full, full public view. But just because Christ died doesn't mean that you're saved. Just because Christ died doesn't mean that the people on our list tonight are saved. Christ's propitiatory sacrifice does not go into effect automatically. If a person wishes to obtain this great blessing, which is the turning away of God's wrath, forgiveness, and acceptance of God, he or she must exercise faith. Faith in Christ and faith alone in Jesus Christ. And again, the phrase that was rendered in his blood through faith is more properly understood through faith in his blood. We talked about that last week. Ordinarily, the the object of faith in the scriptures is stated to be the person of Christ, even in our passage in verses 22 and 26, it's that way. But here, faith is said to be directed toward his blood or his work. We trust Jesus Christ to save us. He can do so because the wrath of God has been satisfied by his work. So the two ideas, meaning the person of Christ and the work of Christ, are essentially inseparable. And that's why Paul can use them interchangeably here. Read along with me now the last half of verse 25 in the New American Standard. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. The words this was, while not in the original text, that's why they're in italics in the New American Standard, are legitimate addition to the text as they help English readers follow the flow of Paul's thought. It could be understood this way, slightly different from what's in New American Standard, so just kind of listen along. This was for the purpose of demonstrating that God is just, acting in accordance with his own character. This demonstration was necessary because he had passed over sins committed before in the time of his forbearance or patience. God's righteousness, which is what is being demonstrated here, also sometimes referred theologically to his, as his justice, is a moral attribute. And as such, as a moral attribute, it is what we would call intrinsic to God. And it's extrinsic to mankind. What I mean is, by nature, God is righteous. 
mankind can possess righteousness or, or have righteousness imputed to us, and we can act righteously, but God is righteous. So when, when Paul says this was for the purpose of demonstrating that God is just, or this was for the purpose of demonstrating for God, that God is righteous, uh, we're talking about a, a Greek term that means to be just or to be right. The Greek term dikaios means just or right. You might have heard of the, of the term dikaiosune, which is a real important term in Romans. That's where we get the word righteousness from. But essentially both mean, or theologically both refer to the intrinsic characteristic of God, wherein he is absolutely, not relatively, he is absolutely just or right, and is the ultimate standard of justice or rightness. There are, there are biblical reasons for believing in the justness or the rightness of God. In Psalm 19:19, 19, 19, righteousness involves his true ordinances. The psalmist says, The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. Psalm 89:14 indicates that the righteousness of God is the foundation of his throne. The psalmist says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne, and faithfulness will, will go before you. Righteousness is the scepter of his kingdom. In Hebrews 1.8, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever, and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. Zephaniah 3.5 mentions that righteousness does no injustice. See, we, we talk today about moral relativity. There's no moral relativity with God. He's perfect. So don't expect him to adapt to our relativistic attitudes. I think a lot of people are going to get a great shock someday when they attempt to stand before the judgment or the, uh, the great white throne and say, I was pretty good. I was a whole lot better than them. I never murdered anybody. I didn't steal. I worked hard. I was a good person. How can you send me to hell? And God's going to say, oh, really, you were. You were a good person. How would you define a good person? I don't mean to be cruel, but sometimes when people, it depends on the situation, but sometimes people ask, well, I am a good person. Why has God allowed this to happen to me? Well, if you really want to get to the heart of the matter, we could, we could go past all the nonsense and say, are you really a good person? Now, depending on who you're talking to, whether they've been saved by grace and they have the righteousness of God imputed to them, that's, that's one direction, but I'm not sure, I'd like to sh you to show me a good person first before we even enter that discussion. But Zephaniah 3.5 says, Righteousness is, is going to do no injustice. The Lord within her is righteousness. He does no wrong. The Lord within him is righteous. He does no wrong. Morning by morning he dispenses his justice, and every day he does not fail. In 2 Corinthians 9.9, 9, Paul says, Righteousness will endure forever. He says, As it is written, he has scattered abroad the gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Righteousness is the ultimate standard of judgment for the world. In Acts 17.31, Paul also says, For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed, meaning Jesus Christ. Righteousness renders to all according to their deeds, something that we might not really like to hear. But that's the truth. There will be an evaluation. Romans 2.6, God will give to each person according to what he has done. It's not talking about eternal life. That's talking about rewards to the believer. And it's a function of his righteousness. 
In 2 Timothy 4.8, Paul indicates that righteousness is the basis again for the believer's rewards. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearances. And finally, in Romans 10.5, righteousness is revealed in the law of God. Moses describes in this way the righteousness that is by the law. The righteousness of God is no slight thing. It's a very important aspect of his character, and he doesn't overlook it just simply because he loves us. So we again have to ask, was righteousness violated by God's passing over the sins committed from Adam to Christ? So when Paul says this was to demonstrate his righteousness... Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the, pre the sins previously committed. Or this was for the purpose of demonstrating that God is just, acting in accordance with his own character. Why was the demonstration necessary? Because he has passed over sins that were committed beforehand. Why did he do it? Because he was patient, not because he's weak. That's what forbearance means. Because in the forbearance or the patience of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. It didn't mean that he just forgot about them or said that they were insignificant. So no, God's righteousness was not violated. God acts perfectly consistent with his own character. And here's how it works. In his omniscience, he knew that the penalty for sin would be paid by Jesus Christ. There is no doubt about it. Therefore, he could postpone the punishment for those sins until the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross became history. See, with God, all knowledge is simultaneous. If he knows it, he knows it. It's, if he knows it, and it's in his omniscience, it's certainly going to come to pass. So he could postpone it. That's what it means by passing over. It doesn't mean that he ignores it. It means he postponed the judgment of it until the event of the cross became history. That's what's going on in verse 25, the last part. In verse 26, Paul says, For a demonstration of his righteousness at the present time, in order that he might show that he's the justifier, or the just and the justifier of the person who has faith in Jesus Christ. This phrase might seem a little redundant at first, because it seems like Paul's already said this. But what it really does is it, it explains further what he said in the previous phrase. And it brings to a conclusion the entire section of verses 21 through 26. God is just. God is righteous in justifying us when we place our faith in Jesus Christ. He hasn't violated his own holiness. He hasn't violated his righteousness or any aspect of his character or his essence because Jesus Christ had been publicly portrayed as the satisfaction for our sins. That's why he could do it. Because Christ paid the penalty, Jesus Christ, or God the Father, in his patience could, could, could set aside the penalty of those sins until Christ had come in history and paid the price historically. But after that's done, it's, it's, it's as if he retroactively applies that grace to the Old Testament saints. But watch. He's going to retroactively apply that judgment to them as well, those who did not follow the pattern of Father Abraham and exercise faith in Jesus Christ. Nobody gets away with anything. The main point Paul's making here is that God's integrity 
was not violated. Now, perhaps, we might see more clearly why Luther called this portion of Scripture the chief point of the whole Bible. Here, Paul is very clear. Justification is by faith. This is done so that that God could prove that he is just or is righteous, and he is the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I know you're tired, but don't miss that last phrase. He's the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. If I was to take a poll and you were totally honest, we could inject you with truth serum, and we were totally honest, most of you would say, I got that. I understand that salvation is by grace through faith, apart from works. Maybe it meant something back in the time of the Reformation when they were fighting and, and killing people over this, but does it really matter today? Well, yes, it does. And the more you exit our own circles and, and circulate in the community at large, the more you'll see that it really matters today. I, I want you to understand that the debate, the debate that goes on regarding justification is just as existent today as it was in Luther's time. I think, by and large, it's taken a more civil form than it did back then, but it's still a, a very real debate I've had the privilege of ministering in different parts of the world, and believe me, if you get outside our very protected circles, it's very much a debate. The Roman Catholic Church, as well as the Orthodox Church, continue to insist on the place of human cooperation in the grace of justification. In other words, they wouldn't necessarily deny that faith is necessary. But they would also maintain that salvation is a cooperative effort between man and God, and that justification by grace is by faith plus works. I can't reconcile the scriptures as a whole, and certainly not the book of Romans, with that view, that salvation is by grace through faith plus works. I I don't really believe that that can be done. I hope that you can see that there's a clear distinction between those two views. They're contradictory, actually. They can't both be right. Justification cannot be both by grace through faith apart from works, and at the same time by grace through faith plus works. So yes, this is a huge issue. And if you're really out there telling other people about Jesus Christ, you're going to run into it. Because I really only see two groups of humanity. Uh, Three if we count those who are going to deny the existence of God altogether. But for those who believe that there is a God, people are either trying to work their way into a right relationship with him, or they are understanding that it's by grace through faith apart from works. I mean, we can divide world religions into all different categories, but really, basically, that's what we're dealing with. People are either trying to be good enough to earn favor with God or whatever they might call God in their language or whatever um, distorted view that they might have of him. Or they understand that they can do nothing to gain it and realize it's by grace through faith. So it's a huge issue. It's not a small issue. And as we conclude this portion of the Word of God, 
Let me summarize this section and, and perhaps conclude it too with a quote from the New Testament scholar James Denny. He put it this way. Listen carefully as we close. There could be no gospel unless there is such a thing as a righteousness of God for the ungodly. But just as little can there be any gospel unless the integrity of God's character can be maintained. The problem of God in dealing with a sinful race is how to handle these two things. The Christian answer to the problems is given by Paul in the words, is given by Paul in the words, Jesus Christ, whom God set forth as a propitiation. Bottom line. The sacrifice of Christ on the cross allows God to rescue us from our lost condition without compromising his integrity. And we are rightly related to God by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. Heavenly Father, we are appreciative that you saw fit to reveal yourself to us in this way. I, I thank you. Not only that you loved us enough to send your son as a sacrifice for us, but that you chose to endure the pain of judging him on our behalf. And what words can we use to thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ who chose to endure the pain, to endure the penalty that was rightly due each one of us. Father, I do pray that the Holy Spirit would not leave this as some cold or sterile theological or philosophical discussion that might be set aside from class to class or from worship time to worship time but father i pray that the thoughts that paul has introduced in this wonderful section of the word of god will burn on our hearts every single day that we're here with every breath that we take i pray that we would always remember the price that was paid for us and that we would live consistently with that and and truly act like we are appreciative of that incredible payment and to that end, Father, we'll ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.